Welcome to Sitka Tells Tales, a live storytelling event based in Sitka, Alaska. The theme tonight is faux pas, false steps and desires for a do-over. This event was originally recorded live at the Mean Queen Restaurant in Sitka on February 25th, 2018, and your host this evening is Ellen Frankenstein. Are you ready? This is Sitka Tells Tales, and our lovely tellers are get six minutes to tell a story to a theme. The theme for tonight is faux pas, false steps, and a desire for a do-over, and that was an audience idea. This event, the ideas for the themes come often from the audiences, so if you have an idea for a theme, you want to be a teller, or you want to help put on an event, we try to do this four or five times a year. I want to say how thankful I am to the tellers, to the mean queen, to my timer, to Emily back there, to Peter for doing sound, to the sentinel. And I also want to say we're going to hear the five tellers. We're going to have a break in after the first three and tell you some special things during the break. And then we're going to pick names out of the jar back there for spontaneous stories. You get two minutes to tell a story to the same theme. And when we do this, we get some great stories. So again, listen to the stories. At intermission, we're going to push the jar. And he'll, afterwards, at the end, Hillary will help me pick. I'm going to start with Britt. Britt Galanin is co-founder of the Boardroom Alaska, Alaska's first co-working space, and managing partner at Element Agency, a marketing and content production company with offices in Sitka, Anchorage, and Seattle. Britt grew up in Sitka, lived outside, and returned home to raise her family. She is happily married with two daughters. The title of her story, When the Going Gets Tough. It's when you think your life is falling apart, it may be actually falling into place. This is a story of a fight or flight and a lesson learned from a Chinese taxi driver. Okay, so I've only ever plotted to kill a man once in my life. And this involved a Korean man, a Japanese man, and a Hainanese taxi driver in the middle of the night in rural China. So before you judge me too much, let me explain the circumstances. It was 2012, which as many of you know, the Mayans thought would be the end of the world. And my world had, as I felt, ended. I had lost my dad that year in a very tragic accident. I was working a dead-end job with a boss who told me I was too ambitious. And I was in a loveless marriage with a guy who just probably wasn't going to be a good life partner for me. I needed a change. And so I applied for a fellowship and received it to go to China for a month for an international diplomacy program. So I got to go to Hainan, which is an island off of the coast of China. Um, it's not the China that most of us think about. It's a tiny province in the South China Sea. And it's very tropical. And they refer to it as China's Hawaii. So I spent a month there with young people from all over the world uh, doing international diplomacy relations work. Made some amazing friends. Towards the end of our program, we decided to go to a place called Sanya. This is important because Sanya, to the Chinese, was the end of the world. It was the furthest point of their country. It was in the middle of the ocean, and everything past Sanya was just ocean and sky. And so the Chinese used to go there, and they thought it was this very magical place. So we decided to go down there. We spent a day. It's about a two-hour train ride from where we were staying. We had this amazing time, amazing time on the beach, great day. 
left Sanya at about midnight and took a train back to Haiko City where we were staying. When we got there, we made a really big mistake. So before you go to China, everybody warns you and they say, watch out for scams. China is infamous for scams. And a lot of those involve things like taxis or ATMs. And so the warning with the taxi was, don't get into a taxi unless you're positive that it's a real taxi. And then when you get in, make sure that your driver agrees to take you where you're going and that you've agreed on that fare. So it's about 2 in the morning when I get into Haiko City. And I'm with a group of six people. We won't all fit in one taxi. So the only Mandarin speaker gets into the other taxi. But first, she talks to my taxi driver and says, here's the address of where they're going. Um, make sure that they get there. You know, She speaks Mandarin. She gets off. She goes. So I hop into a taxi with a Korean man and a Japanese man. And it's about a 45-minute ride back to our resort where we're staying. And I fall asleep. And so I wake up when the taxi has hit a dirt road. And this is alarming because there's no dirt roads where we're staying. I've spent almost a month at this point checking out this area. And I know that we should not be hitting a dirt road. It's pitch black outside. I can't see any buildings. And the taxi is hurling down the road. So I go to my Korean friend and my Japanese friend and, you know, Luckily, we speak English. We know that the taxi cab driver does not. Very calm voice. You know, what do you guys think is going on? No one has any idea. We come up with two conclusions. We're either being kidnapped, which is a potentially real possibility, or we're going to die, and he's taking us to murder us. So, so we've decided, you know, we're not happy about either one of these options. <laughs> not feeling good about it. Um, I've got Shuji sitting in the front seat, and Shuji's like about 110 pounds soaking wet. And then I've got my friend Opa sitting next to me, and he's a pretty big Korean guy, and he's directly behind the driver. So we decide that Opa is going to put this Chinese taxi driver into a headlock. Shuji is going to reach across. He's going to open up the door, and he's going to shove the driver out. <laughs> we are going to take the car and figure out what to do from there. So we're kind of psyching each other up, like, we got this. All right, OK, here we go. All of a sudden, he picks up the phone. And he's, the taxi driver picks up the phone. And he starts talking rapidly, very quickly. Not in Mandarin, by the way, um, in Hainanese, the local dialect. And we can tell he's getting kind of stressed out and more and more worried. So we're like, OK, well, he's probably like talking to the kidnappers. And they're like making some plan, telling him where to take us. And then we start to think, OK, maybe there's another scenario here. Maybe he's just lost. Turns out, he was just lost. <laughs> so one thing that you should know, and if, if you travel to China, you probably are aware of, is that Google does not work in China. That means Google Maps does not work. Um, Apple Maps does not work. It's also 2012, so those are about all the things that we have on our phone. So we decide, you know, this guy's lost. He's clearly very stressed out about it, and we are able to Use my Japanese friend uses his phone. Keep in mind, it's a Japanese map, but he pulls it up. He's able to show the guy with a GPS tracker sort of where we are. We figure out we're about an hour away from where we're supposed to be, but we still navigate all the way back to the hotel. I have never been more happy to see a security guard in my entire life. And when we pulled up to the resort, they phoned ahead. They let, they let the hotel know that we were there, and we got there. And there's the hotel staff outside. At this point, it's like 4 in the morning, and there's the people, the program participants, they're all out there too. And everyone's so happy to see us. And I burst into tears. The taxi cab driver burst into tears. 
was this really big moment, bonding moment for the group, and uh, we gave them a really, really big tip. So that trip for me, for a variety of reasons, was life-changing. I came home from that trip, and I realized, you know, my world is not ending, and I can do, you know, what I want with it. And so I quit my job. I got a divorce. I started two companies, and, you know, I moved back to this great community. But I like to think that it, it goes back to that taxi cab driver, and he taught me a really valuable lesson that night. If you get off of your path and you're not sure of where you're going, just keep on going, because I promise you the world is not going to end. Thank you. So that was a lot of fun. Thank you. Um, and I'm going to introduce Matt Turner now. So Matt's our next storyteller tonight. He has lived here in Sitka longer than any other place in his life. He mostly lies dormant, but under the right conditions, he can burst into art. The title of his story is The Great York Country Parade Caper. And wherein our hero impersonates their nemesis and inadvertently alters the path of history. Okay, so imagine the theme to Mission Impossible playing in your head. I'm sure that Dan and I were. It, probably we were even humming it. Duh, 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 duh. Because we only had minutes to change from our band uniforms into the judges' uniforms and get out before the West York High School Marching Band crested the hill. Dan DeLeon, trumpet player, senior, co-conspirator, had the keys to his sister's apartment, which was at the end of the parade route. I, saxophone junior, had, uh, was, was gathering the clipboards, putting on the headsets and taking the cord at the end and shoving it down the back of my pants because I didn't have a tape recorder. We looked at each other, squared off. Yeah, we looked good. And we went out into the crisp air and into the oncoming parade. But I probably should step back a little bit. So Dover High School is part of uh, 16 schools in the greater York County area. York County has a Halloween parade every year. All the high schools participate, and they are judged. Now, the judging takes two forms. There is a uh, kind of a general grand marshal league judge thing that happens at the end of the parade, and they're judging all the things that go by, the floats and the, and the bands and all the other stuff that happens in a parade. But then there are marching band judges. Yeah, we, we have those in the Northeast. And now these guys, mostly what they're doing is they're judging marching band competitions. So uh, a bunch of high school bands would meet at a football field, We'd march our halftime routines, and, uh, and they'd be scored. And these guys are brutal. Every missed note, every misstep, every dropped flag is a point against you. And the way they scored, they, they had clipboards, but some of them even had headsets. And so as you're marching along, they'd be talking so loud, you'd hear them talking smack about you. Oh, that saxophone's out of step. Oh, man. These guys were tough. So. We thought it'd be fun to impersonate them. <laughs> now, uh, fate kind of played a card here because the Dover High School was uh, chosen to be the first band in the parade that year. That meant that we had a lot of time on our hands. And wait a minute, Dan had that uh, his sister's apartment at the end. So the wheels started turning. Mr. Mao, the band director, um, had the uh, judges' competition scoring forms and a third period prep. 
So I forged a pass, and Dan and I went down there. While I distracted Mr. Mao with some inane question about band, Danny slipped the piece of paper out, went to the school secretary, wh whom we ply with chocolates for just such an emergency. She made copies for us, and we had our thanks. The judges' uniforms were pretty simple. Uh, it was uh, navy blue pants, white shirt, navy blazer. This caper was working so well that uh, we were willing to even spend our own precious teenage money on uh, the uniform, although I do recall that later we did turn in the jackets and said they didn't fit. <laughs> Quick trip to the Army-Navy store got us the uh, headsets, the clipboards, and we were ready to go. So, the parade route. So keep in mind, the parade is a couple miles long, and the judges' stand is at the end. And as a marching band, you can't play the whole time. You'd blow your chops. And the uh, flags and the twirlers have some sort of routine or something. So the strategy is, as you crest the top of the hill, there's the judges' stand at the bottom, you start your routine so that your band is in full swing as you cross the judges' stand. And that's how you get judged. Well, here's the thing. Danny and I are on the other side of this hill. And as the bands are approaching and marching, they see these two guys in the uniform and the clipboard, and what else are they going to do? They blow the whistle, the drums start, and they start their song, just for our benefit. Oh, it felt great. It was fantastic. And yes, we did all the dirty band tricks. We sat there and tisked on our clipboards. I stood in front of a flute, and when she veered, I marked a point. We were talking smack into our things. It was wonderful. For the first time, we felt that we had wrested the control and the authority that had oppressed us, those judges. We were not only impersonating adults, you know, and I was admoni gently admonishing people to stay on the curb. People were asking me directions to the restroom, but we were impersonating the judges, the system that had kept us down. <laughs> but here's the thing. All those bands, 15 marching bands after us, were starting their, their routine too early. And as they were cresting the hill and came over, their, their songs were finished. Now, I imagine they had one of two choices. They could either quickly start the start their song again, which they hadn't rehearsed, and they'd be tired at that point to march in front, or even worse, they were just marching awkwardly and silently in front of the judges. Fifteen bands that we forced a misfire. We had not intended that. We just wanted to be judges. Well, as this realization is sinking into Danny and I, we look over, and here comes the next band director marching towards us, eight steps to five yards. And he does a double take, and oh, crap, he recognizes us. This is the guy that was hired by Dover to work at summer band camp. He knew who we were. And just like the air leaking from a balloon, that fleeting feeling of power went away. And we were teenagers again and we melted into the crowd. Our next guest needs no introduction. Stacey Johnson is a humanitarian, a real-life social worker, a world traveler, a Return to Peace Corps volunteer, but even a people-loving culture junkie can be on the wrong side of uncomfortable dialogues of racist rhetoric. So I grew up in Junction City, Kansas, seconds outside of Fort Riley, Kansas, one of the oldest military army bases in the United States. I grew up with a very diverse community. Um, 
a lot of African Americans, Korean, there was a very large Korean population, Puerto Ricans. People who looked like me weren't the minority, but we definitely didn't feel like the majority. It was, we celebrated all of our ethnicities and cultures with fairs and festivals. It was a great place to grow up. In 2005, I was living in Denver, Colorado. I was bartending at the Hard Rock Cafe on 16th Street. It was a very fun, spunky place to work. They encouraged us to be flirty with our customers, have a good time. A lot of times they would uh, encourage us to get up on stage and sing and dance when all the seats and tables were taken. It was, it was a good time. Oh. They called me Jukebox because I knew all the words to all the songs that they played over the loudspeakers, and I mean all of them, and I had no shame. I'd get in front of everybody and dance and sing, and it was a good time. So it was NBA All-Stars weekend, and I do remember our clientele that weekend was a little different than we're used to. Usually it was tourists, older people with their families and grandchildren, and it was just, this weekend was a little different because it was NBA All-Stars weekend. It was a predominantly black crowd and um, I was getting my butt kicked. I was making lots of money, which was lots of fun, but from the time I showed up at 10 o'clock in the morning until leaving at about three o'clock in the morning, it was bam, 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 bam. But I was still having a good time. I was singing and laughing, having a good time, flirting with all my customers and I remember about five guys came in and sat at my bar. They sat down, they were very sharply dressed, really kind smiles, and I'm going to town making drinks, and I was like, hey guys, welcome to Hard Rock Cafe, can I grab you boys something to drink? And I'm just going at it, and I you know, go to get their drink order, and they all stood up to walk away. I was like, huh, okay, maybe they just changed their mind. So I carry on doing what I'm doing, and uh, a few moments later, my boss is walking towards me, and he looks mad. I don't know, I was like, he's not mad at me, I didn't do anything, I'm working. He comes up to me and he's like, you're from Denver, aren't you? And I was like, what? I had no idea what he was talking about. He's like, you just called that group of men boys. Whew. Oh. No, I didn't even stop to think anything of it. I ran past him. I went and found the gentleman about a half a block away and I stopped them. I was like, excuse me, I am so, so sorry. I had no idea what I just said. It, I'm getting emotional just thinking about it now. That's how embarrassed I was. But in retrospect, I think about how embarrassed I was. Let's talk about white privilege there and how I should have been thinking about how embarrassed they were. It was one of the most eye-opening experiences of my entire life. And to this day, I've never called any grown man a boy since then. It's fellas, guys, gentlemen, that's about it. But never, ever, ever, ever will I call a grown man a boy again. It was definitely a learning experience. Can we give even a, another round of applause for our three tellers? I think in the day and age we're in, the reason I keep doing this and organizing, helping organize this is because these are true stories. 
right? And I really believe that hearing true stories from each other changes us and brings us closer together. And in this time, we won't talk about everything that's going on. It's really nice to feel connected. So our next storyteller is Brendan Jones. Brendan first came to Sitka in 1997. He fishes and teaches at Sitka Fine Arts and has published a book, The Alaskan Laundry. The title of his story, A False Step in France, a story about stepping into unknown rooms and those rooms leading to surprising places. Thank you so much for uh, doing this, Ellen, and making this possible. So this story is about a false step, literally a false step, finding myself in a room where I never expected to be. But thinking about it in a retrospect, uh, it led to some very beautiful things. So the year was 2002, and I was in Paris. I was living with my girlfriend at the time. We were living in a, a chambre de bonne, which is this maid's quarters, literally, uh, at the top of this apartment building. Just this small little space. And she was working as an au pair. And I was tutoring in English. And I was trying to find better work. I had a best friend in Paris at the time, this guy named Terence. And he was Cambodian. He was this tall dude. He had this thick black hair. He had these smudged glasses. And he was a gamer. He loved online poker. And his father, uh, his father was um, a taxi driver in Paris. And uh, he escaped Cambodia in the 1970s. He escaped the Khmer Rouge. He was a very serious man, needless to say. And he was always riding Terrence, trying to get Terrence to get a job, you know, quit this online poker. And so finally, Terrence and I decided, all right, we're going to hit the town, and we're going to be serious, and we're going to get a job. And so we went to Gap. We went to CD shops. It was 2002. We uh, tried to be tour guides in the catacombs. We tried to be announcers on the Bateau Mouche, this boat that goes down the Seine. And it was always these near misses that ended, usually in the bar, <laughs> drinking, talking about why we didn't get this particular job. And then one Friday, he called me and said, Chef. He always called me Chef. Chef, I have a sure thing. All you have to do is follow these simple instructions. You have to find your tightest pair of khakis, your tightest black shirt, and you have to shave very, very closely and arrive at this address, 17 Pontochu in the Marais, in 30 minutes. <laughs> Click. That's kind of how we did things, uh, this like Gallic intensity. And so I decided, what the heck, I'm going to do it. And so I found my tightest khakis, and I think I borrowed my girlfriend's uh, black shirt. And I shaved really closely, and I jumped on the subway, and I found this address, and there was Terence standing there, and he had his tight khakis and his tight black shirt. I remember there was stains on his khakis, and he was wearing these black Converse shoes, and his hair tied back, and there also was 50 other guys dressed exactly the same, lined up outside this building. And in front of the building was this little placard that said, Pink TV. And in fact, the only woman there was this very stylishly dressed woman who had a clipboard. And she said, all right, we're about to enter the building. Everybody line up. And so we did. And I asked Terence again, do you know what we're doing here? And he said, no, I don't. And so we asked the guy behind us who kind of shrugged and said, uh, no, I don't really know either. But I think it's going to be good. <laughs> and so we went into the building. And we climbed the stairs. 
and we got to the second floor, and it was this long corridor, and at the end of the corridor was this gray steel door, and about three of every four guys that went into that door would reemerge looking kind of sullen, but one wouldn't. <laughs> and slowly by slowly, one by one, I got closer, to the, closer and closer to this door. Finally, I got there, and there was the um, gal with the clipboard, and she ushered me in, and she shut the door behind me, and I looked around, and it was this kind of horseshoe configuration of tables, about 12 or 13 men and women there, and the guy right in the middle pressed play on a um, cassette recorder, and he said, bouge, which means move. And I kind of looked at him. He said, mais qu'est-ce que vous faites là? Allez, bouge. Like, what the are you doing? Come on, move. And it was this techno music, like this loud beat techno music. And I kind of stood there for a second, and then I was like, all right. And I started like, like going and crazy and all, everything. And the room was silent for a second, and then everybody started cracking up. Like it was the funniest thing they had ever seen. He stopped the music, and then after a little pause, he started it again. He said, encore, encore. <laughs> and so this time, I really went for it. <laughs> like really getting into it and people started cracking up again really really loud and then finally some very kind person said okay which means like just go on get out of here <laughs> and so I left and Terence went in he didn't uh, get selected either we met up outside we found out that we were auditioning for the gay pride parade um, <laughs> handing out pamphlets for Paris's uh, gay channel um, called Pink TV. Of course, we ended up in a bar talking about what had happened. But what I remember, what I remember about being in that bar, is that we were both saying how we really should have gotten that job. <laughs> we were not like, you know, models, but we were all right looking, and we should really kind of figure out how to dance a little bit better. <laughs> and so it was about a month after that that I started taking salsa lessons. Um, and about seven years after that, that I started teaching salsa. And in 2011, I came to Sitka. I started teaching Cuban salsa. And it was a Cuban salsa class that I met my wife right over there. Um, and we had these two beautiful kids. So <laughs> false steps, I guess, sometimes can lead you know, certain places. And I think about wanting to do a do-over. And I, I would really like to be back in that room. And I think I could do better. <laughs> but. Um, but in the meantime, I'm all right. I still haven't learned to dance the techno, but I think that'll be okay. Thank you. Next is Hillary Sealand. Hillary has had a hard time writing short bios for storytelling events. She grew up in Sidka, left when she was 18, and swore she would never be back. However, after surviving faux pas after faux pas in every aspect of life, she's found herself back in Sidka, filled with passion for education, civil rights, and attempting to do her darndest to make the world a little bit better for everyone. This is a story about connection, about how plunging myself into the unknown allowed me to build relationships with some amazing young people whose misunderstood ways of being opened my heart. I've heard this story. It is amazing. You're lucky to be hearing it. Okay, I had a hard time with this theme because my whole life has been a series of faux pas. It was hard to pick just one. So I settled on 
a time in my life, in my, my mid-20s, and this may come as a shock to most of you, but I had no idea who I was at, in my mid-20s, zero clue. Um, I knew a couple things. I knew that I had a bachelor's degree in English literature, but I was not gonna be a teacher, absolutely not. Everyone else told me I had to be one, and I refused. And two, I was not gonna come back to Sitka, ever, ever. Um, so I found myself in this place, and of course, uh, not being a teacher, I am going to be the next hybrid of Virginia Woolf and Charles Bukowski. So I packed my purple backpack full of mostly books and a few other things, got on a plane with only my PFD, no big plan, and got a one-way plane ticket to Portland, where I was going to you know, change the world uh, as a writer. And I get to Portland, um, I find the cutest little apartment with exposed brick in a 100-year-old building in Northwest Portland, I'm gonna do the thing. Um, and I very quickly realized that uh, I was not going to be able to keep that cute apartment if I did not get a job, so I started applying for jobs. I went to the coffee shop as an obligatory Portlandian and applied for all of these jobs, including a, a traveling door-to-door -door knife salesman and a uh, an admin assistant at a metaphysical doggy daycare and spa. <laughs> I was told constantly that I was either overqualified or underqualified for everything I applied for. So the, my sort of last ditch effort to live in Portland, I perused the Portland Public Schools website for jobs that I might be qualified for and they called me back. I went in and they hired me to be a bus driver. <laughs> um, totally underqualified for that. Uh, I spent three weeks of training with this humorless woman named Linda who had been driving buses for 30 years. She had no patience for me. Uh, the one good thing that came out of that training was that I scored a date with the DMV guy who got to give me my air brakes test for my commercial driver's license six times. <laughs> yep. So I get in this bus, I'm, I'm going, downtown Portland, giant school bus, not confident. Um, after my second week, I had incurred my third major accident, which includes sides, included sideswiping a telephone pole and flattening all of the side mirrors so they were flush with the bus. Yep. Um, next, I went in and I was assigned to drive the special ed school buses, <laughs> which was great because they were half the size and no air brakes. I was told that I was going to be transporting five second grade boys who were, had emotional and behavioral challenges. I had no experience working with children. I had no experience working with special ed children. Uh, but I did get to drive the smaller bus, so I was excited. So I get to my first stop, which is in southwest Portland in this beautiful wooded area. I get there right on time, and here is this young, I came to find out, single mother with her middle school, high school age daughter, and here is this little boy. And he, he looks like a fairy child. And he is wearing from neck to feet a collage of superhero regalia. All various types. And then he had this electric blue helmet that's plastered with superhero stickers. I, I immediately fell in love with him. Open the door, he steps up, he bows. And then he goes and he sits in his seat, which was his seat forever. I close the door, I'm all nervous. I start the bus and then I hear this tapping 
and I turned my head, and he is self-soothing by tapping his head against the window, which freaked me out a little bit, but um, this was a new experience for me. Then I went to pick up the other four boys who are their own stories on their a whole different time. Each one of them I could talk about forever. So this one boy, I'll call him A, he and I ended up spending a lot of time together. Uh, he was my first pickup in the morning, and he was my last drop-off in the afternoon. Um, oftentimes, when I would go to drop him off, his mother wasn't home from work, and his sister wasn't home from school, so we would hang out. So we started talking, and I found out he loved movies. So he would tell me, he started, once we built the trust, he started telling me these movies over and over and over. It was the movie he saw last night, or the week before, or the month before that, and I heard all of them multiple times. Um, but we started bonding over movies and just having this conversation. About probably a month later, I, I kind of had an idea and I decided to try it out on him. So we had this conversation, we chatted, and then I asked him if it would be okay if we could write movies together. So he and I started this conversation. We'd talk about these movies and we had these great elaborate stories and these amazing lands. Um, and that went on for another couple months. And then one day, I was driving back, driving him home, and I was so used to the tapping against the window, and all of a sudden, it stopped. And I, I safely, you know, safely kind of turned my head to check on him, and he was staring right at me with these bright blue eyes and this huge smile, and he says, bus driver, I started making movies in my head. And I literally, I had to pull the bus over and I had this huge conversation with him about how he felt. And all of a sudden, he, he had had this moment where he could soothe himself without banging his head against the window by making these movies in his head. And then every day when I dropped him off, or in the morning, he would tell me the movie that he made in his head. Fast forward a year and a half later, master's degree in teaching, and I'm back in Sitka, educating Sitka's youth. So there we go. Now it's time for spontaneous stories from the audience. Two-minute stories to the faux pas theme told on the spot. We're doing a drawing. Can we have the jar, please? Thank you. Robin McNeely. Robin! Robin! Come, Robin. So Stacy's story reminded me that I was once a military brat Midwesterner and uh, as such had very little um, interaction with seafood also. My mom was a very hardworking lower middle class lady and she had a good friend who uh, was a live-in maid for a judge and one day we got invited to the judge's house for a party. That was super exciting. We're like, we got to find some good clothes. We gotta, we gotta act right. So we went to the judge's house for a party. It was super fancy. His house was huge. I think our house would fit in his house. And uh, mom's friend who lived downstairs, like she just got to live in the whole huge downstairs basement area in exchange for cleaning his house and stuff like that. And we're just at this fabulous party full of these fancy people and there's food and there's shrimp. And so I get a little plate full of food and and I put the shrimp in my mouth, and as I crunch down, I realize I have heard the words, peel and eat shrimp before. 
And I, that must be what this is. <laughs> and like this moment now, while all of you are looking at me, I feel very exposed in this party, <laughs> full of fancy people. And on the second bite, I realize I cannot erp this shrimp back into my hand or onto my plate. So I bite again and again. And I eat the entire peel and eat shrimp. And I leave this party with knowledge. <laughs> um, I realize now that my previous story involves sushi and that being a military Midwestern girl, I had a very limited uh, idea of food. Not that it wasn't the most delicious food that anybody's ever eaten, because my mom is the best cook that anybody will ever know. But it did not involve seafood. And when I came to Sitka, I had a lot to learn. And black cod tips are the absolute bomb. Thanks, Robin. Next up, here we go, it's Hank Moore. Okay. Big bad mistake. Well, what I was thinking about is the first fight I ever lost. I was about seven years old, and I used to be the bully in my neighborhood at that point. So we was playing these kids on the other side of the creek, and it was this girl named Faye Jo Bowell. <laughs> you know, and uh, Anyway, I was running the football. She tackled me. She hit me pretty hard, and I got really mad. And I said, girl, you wait when you get the ball. I'm going to knock you out. <laughs> she got the ball, and she was running around my side, and I ran into a man, and my head was like, you know, the balloon on the spokes on a bicycle? <laughs> it was like she just ran clean over me, and I was so angry. I said, you know, I'm going to beat you up. And I started throwing rocks at her, right? <laughs> and she would dodge in those rocks, walking right up to me. <laughs> when she got to me, she did pow, pow, pow. She just nailed me, and I was just hollering. My brother told me I sound like a cat after somebody throw hot water on it. And I went home, and I was embarrassed, and my daddy looked at me. He said, why are you crying? I said, Daddy, it was a whole bunch of boys down there beat me up. <laughs> and the only thing Tommy and Joey did was laugh. Joey said, it might have felt like a bunch of boys, but it was one little girl. I said, no. It wasn't. He said, yes, it was. Thanks for your story, Hank. Let's pull one more name out of the jar. It's Pat Alexander. Welcome, Pat. On my 13th birthday, I left the beautiful town of Sitka to live in Shures, Nevada which is on the Walker River Paiute Reservation. And it was 180 degrees different than Sitka. Every way that Sitka was, Schurz was not. And so we rode a school bus 30 miles one way every day. And the only music they had on that bus was Western music, which was the only kind I didn't like. <laughs> but I'm like that one lady now. I know all the words. <laughs> but um, the really smooth 
Paiute boys, you know. They'd sit behind us on the school bus, my sister and I, and they'd sing this song. Ooga, ooga, mushka, which means that I love you. If you will be my baby, I'll ooga, ooga, mushka you. All year. <laughs> and they would tease. They would tease. If they could tease you until you cried, that was like the best thing for them. They were over the moon. And I figured that out before my sister did, so they made her cry a lot. But if I had a do-over, I'd learn how to roll with the jokes so that uh, I wouldn't have to uh, have them make me cry so much. It took me most of a year to learn. Thank you. Pat, thanks. So glad you shared that story. Thank you for joining us for Sitka Tells Tales, a live storytelling event based in Sitka, Alaska. Thank you also to our storytellers today, Britt Galanin, Matthew Turner, Stacy Johnson, Brendan Jones, Hilary Sealand, Robin McNeely, Hank Moore, and Pat Alexander. Thank you also to Raven Radio and the Mean Queen Restaurant. To find more about Sitka Tells Tales and to hear the podcast, you could visit artchangeinc.org. Your host this evening was Ellen Frankenstein, and our theme song is Clink Tale by Poddington Bear. This episode of Sitka Tells Tales was made possible with funding from the Sitka Alaska Permanent Charitable Trust and by the Rasmussen Foundation, administered by the Alaska State Council on the Arts. <laughs>